I'm delighted to welcome you to worship today. Thank you for coming. For those of you who were here last week, you got a little bit of a primer on those great cards, as you recall, uh, that you, we call welcome cards. I'm delighted to tell you that last week we did not have a single complaint on the welcome cards. Oh, woohoo! I was dancing. It made me have happy feet inside and out, so thank you. Although there is one a student who decided to um, poke a little fun at me, so she filled out her card. I thought you'd see it, that you'd like it. Her name was Susie Student. She lives at 123 Sesame Street in the city of Oogadougou and the state of Confused. She ordered a lettuce and mayo sandwich with a side of sweet potatoes. And up in the right-hand side, where it says, I want to follow Jesus, be baptized, she said, I want to Skype a composer, learn to drive, and then rule the world. <laughs> so it was a little naughty. She was using it in a way that was not intended, but it was pretty fun. So We're continuing in our series through the Gospel of Mark called Sick of Religion. There are a lot of folks in the world that are kind of sick of religion, and there were times when Jesus himself was sick of religion too. And this morning we are coming to what is probably the most controversial and divisive aspect of our life as a congregation, as a church, as a people, and that is worship. It must break God's heart, for it is so that Our worship of God, regretfully, becomes often a cause for division within the church, and often discussed as those on the outside of the church are are looking in. Our traditions and our styles and our preferences become so so important to us that we can end up worshiping those preferences more than we do the Lord to which they are directed. And in this story, this morning, we encounter a beloved Jewish worship tradition called fasting. You know what fasting is. It's going without food. In this case, spiritually, it's going without food for an act of spiritual devotion. Uh, Interestingly, in the Old Testament, fasting wasn't very prominent. It, it uh, It was actually limited to one day of the year that it was required. That was the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, when the people came together to worship God and to repent of their sins. And there were times when there were national crises, uh, when the people would be called to prayer and fasting, but it wasn't a huge part of their worship life. But interestingly, by the time of the New Testament, fasting had, been, had turned into one of the three key acts of piety, along with almsgiving and prayer. And the Pharisees, who were the strictest of all of the Jewish sects, had this down to an art form. They fasted twice a week. Mondays and Friday, and Mondays and Thursdays were their fast days. And not only did they fast, they apparently made a big show of it. When Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, he says that uh, the, 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 he implies that those who were fasting tended to look as hungry and miserable as they could, so that everyone would notice that they were fasting and realize what truly spiritual and pious people they must be. So by the time of Christ, fasting had become a badge of spiritual honor. If you were a good rabbi, if you were a true worshiper of God, then you fasted regularly and obviously. That sets us up for our text for the morning. It comes from Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. Now Jesus' disciples and the Pharisees were fasting and people came and asked him, why do, why do John's disciples, 
I said Jesus' disciples, didn't I? I'm going to start over because that messes the whole thing up. <laughs> it, it screws up the whole story. Let me try it again. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came to him and said, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisee, Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as the bridegroom is with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and, and then they can fast on that day. No one sews an unshrunk piece of cloth to an old garment. If he does, the patch rips away from it, the new from the old, and the, a worse tear is made. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. This is the word of the Lord. Weddings in the Middle East are a big deal. And I know that personally because Cindy and I flew back one time to the wedding of a Muslim friend of ours. And I'm telling you, that place was rocking. It was an epic experience. The wedding and the reception was full of food and drink and music and dancing and gift giving and smoking. Lots of smoking. Oh, so much smoking. And this went on and on and on into the night. We began to wonder if we would ever make our way back to our beds. And finally, in the mid-morning hours, we, we, we declared uncle. And we just left. We said, we're sorry, but we got to go. We, there was only one other person who left that wedding reception before we did. And I found out later, she was, no kidding, an elderly woman who had terminal cancer and only a few months left to live. <laughs> we only outlasted her. Our, our hosts were not very impressed with our, our stamina. But that is nothing what we experienced compared to a wedding at the time of Christ. In, in those days, wedding celebrations lasted seven days. And pity the poor father and mother of the bride and groom because they paid for everything. Everything was provided for those seven days. The food and the drink and the dancing and the music. And often it would spill out into the streets of the village so that everyone could enjoy it. Even the rabbis were exempted from their religious duties because they were expected to participate in this important community gathering. Imagine then if the wedding guests had shown up expecting a, a week of revelry and partying and we're, we're told this, listen, we're going to try something new. We're going to fast for this wedding. So for the next seven days, it's going to be bread and water for you. L'chaim! <laughs> it would have been the ultimate social faux pas. A group of people approached Jesus, and, uh, and in this story, they seem to ask, be asking, what kind of a rabbi are you anyway? Your disciples don't fast. How religious can they really be? And so Jesus uses the analogy of this wedding celebration, this wedding feast, to explain it. He said, remember, fasting was primarily a show. In the Old Testament, it was primarily a show of mourning. Almost always it had to do with repentance and mourning. And often it was 
longing for the deliverance of God that was going to come through their long-awaited Messiah. That was the point of fasting. And so Jesus is standing there and basically is saying, Duh, I'm here. The one that you have longed and waited and fasted and prayed for to come. I have come. It is not an appropriate time for fasting. This is a time for celebration. Fasting and sorrow are incompatible with this moment. Now we listen to this and, and it might make sense to us because fasting really isn't a big part of our culture. But it was very upsetting to the people who were asking these questions. Because they were used to worshiping God this way. The traditions that had developed, even though they weren't biblical traditions regarding fasting, were still important to them and precious to them. For Jesus not to worship God in their established ways, in the way of the Pharisees and in the way of others of them, for Jesus not to worship that way seemed to them disrespectful of the right and proper proper and sacred way that one ought to worship God. Now, it's not that Jesus wasn't a good Jew He was a pretty good Jew. He respected their tradition. And all you got to do is read the entirety of the Gospels to find that. You find him often in synagogue. We know that he went at least three times down to Jerusalem to participate in the nationwide festivals that, that one could attend. He obviously prayed regularly. He knew the Scriptures backward and forward, probably because he wrote them. In fact, we know that Jesus even wore the prayer shawl. That included the tassels near the fringe of the fringe on the bottom of the garment. So in all of these ways, Jesus demonstrated his terrific respect for Jewish tradition. He was willing to do that. What he was not willing to do was be boxed in by man-made forms of worship. In this point, he's saying it's not that fasting was bad. He's saying that fasting is not appropriate for this moment, for this season, for this time. That's the, that's the thing about worship traditions and styles. They might be very good, very important, very life-giving, very inspiring, very significant. But they can also become brittle and unbending. They end up becoming the means instead of the end. And so we end up focused more on, on the means of worship instead of the God that we're called to worship. Jesus drives home that point with these two little adages. He talks about the silliness of sewing a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment because when it shrinks, it's going to rip the whole thing out and it would be a terrible tear. And he also talks about the the silliness of putting wine into new wine into old wineskins. Now, we don't understand that, so let me talk about it. Wineskins were made out of animal skin, usually lamb or goat. And when they were new, when they were fresh, they were elastic. So you'd pour new wine into these flexible, supple wineskins. And as the wine began to ferment and expand and grow, the wineskins were able to grow with it. Which was terrific. But if you put the new wine in old wineskins, which had become brittle and hard... The the result was disastrous, he says. It's not good for the old wineskin. It's not good for the wine. It's good for nothing. Everything is destroyed. One of the great challenges facing the church in every generation is to focus not on the wineskins, but on the wine. 
We can't help it, though. We fall in love with certain ways of worshiping God, with certain tradition, with certain styles, with certain music. And instead of it becoming our preference, which is perfectly acceptable, it becomes the standard. And it becomes the only acceptable way to worship God. And anything else is unbiblical or unchristian. We end up clinging to the structures of worship that were once new and fresh and flexible, but are not so much anymore. We claim that we want God to do a new work in our body. We want the Holy Spirit stirring in our church, but we want Him to do that within our old wineskins. And Jesus says it doesn't work. It's one of the things that we have been thinking about as elders and pastors in the church in this last year. We realized, as we've talked about before, that we, had, we sensed that God wanted to do a new work amongst us. We believed that we had become more inc- increasingly introverted, inwardly turned, and we needed to turn our hearts out once again to make a place for those who do not yet know God's love make a place for them in our family. And so we made some changes. And the Spirit began to stir and to make some new wine. And we started straining at the seams a little bit. And could I just tell you that I I will be the first one to say that I have been strained at the seams. I've been here 32 years. There's nothing in this church, particularly in worship, that I don't have my fingerprints on. This is what I was a part of building. This is my stuff. And so when we talk about the strain of the new work of the Spirit against old wineskin, I am exhibit A, your old wineskin. <laughs> Trying to stretch a little bit. And we're doing fine as a church. This, this is not the first time that Chapel Hill has learned to deal with change. If anything, change is the constant in this church. We, we have dealt with with growth before. And we are figuring out the way to balance the respect for the older ways as well as making a place for the new ways. But change is hard, especially when it comes to beloved forms of worship. And I wonder if it would encourage you to discover that this is an issue with which every Christian generation has dealt. I'll give you a couple examples. You know the name D.L. Moody? Raise your hand. Yes? Dwight L. Moody? Moody Institute? If you don't, he was the 19th century equivalent of Billy Graham. As a matter of fact, he was the guy who developed the whole system that Billy Graham and others ended up following in their great evangelistic efforts. And you might be surprised to discover that Dwight Moody, D.L. Moody, got his start, though, in Scotland. He was an American, but he began his preaching ministry in Scotland. He did so by calling together the leaders of all the local churches. And they were all very well represented, with the exception of one group from the Highlands, the arch-Calvinists from the Highlands, the Presbyterians. (laughs) They wanted nothing to do with Moody for all kinds of reasons. But one of the reasons they were most suspicious of him was that Moody sang hymns at his gatherings. The Highlanders sang psalms, only the psalms, unaccompanied because that's what's in the Bible. And anything else was a modern innovation and was not Christian and it was not biblical. To make it even worse, Moody not only had hymns being sung at his gatherings, it was accompanied by this newfangled, noisy musical instrument called the pump organ. This was cutting-edge stuff. This was the rock and roll machine of the time. And they were outraged at the use of this instrument. So certainly that's not to be found in the Bible. 
They called it the kissed of whistles, or the chest of whistles, and it was not a compliment. So on the day that Moody was supposed to kick off his, uh, his revival in, uh, in Edinburgh, when the, the wagon that was carrying the pump organ turned a corner too quickly and dumped the thing out on the street and damaged it, the Highlanders were saying, See, it is the judgment of God upon this satanic musical instrument. They felt very vindicated. They found another organ and kept going and did just fine. Thank you very much. That was in the 19th century. Nasty hymns. Nasty pipe organ. How about the 20th century? Fifteen years ago, I gathered with a group of pastors, and we listened as the pastor of that church that had been there for quite a while, the church had been, he read from the archives of the session a letter that had been written back in the 1930s. And it complained that one of the songs in the worship services was way too modern. It catered too much to the young people of the time, and it did not possess the dignity and the theological integrity of the great hymns of the church. The writer claimed to represent a significant and generous segment of the congregation who were offended by this modern innovation, and they demanded that the session not allow this radical modern song to be sung in their worship services anymore. Do you know the name of that radical modern song? Great is thy faithfulness. I know, wild, isn't it? (laughs) In every age, Christians have struggled with the expressions of worship, the new expressions of worship. And I'm sure in the 12th century, there were letters being written to the bishops complaining about those radical chanting monks. What is this chanting stuff? We all become attached to our wineskins, and we forget it's really about the wine. And by the way, those who love the new stuff, the modern stuff, they can be just as judgmental and brittle in their ways as their older brothers and sisters. It is one thing to say the hymns just don't speak to me. It is another to say that the hymns are dead and useless. All of us are capable of becoming brittle. All of us are capable of becoming inflexible. All of us can become focused on our wineskin instead of the wine. And one of the things I love about this passage is Jesus doesn't say, out with the old. We don't need no stinking fasting anymore. Get rid of it. In fact, he says there will come a time when it's appropriate. The time when the bridegroom is taken away, that's an appropriate time to fast again. By the way, you know what he was talking about, right? This is his first allusion in many, uh, in Mark, to his own death. There will come a time, he said, when it is more sorrowful and it is appropriate to fast. But he said, in the meantime, don't get so focused, so attached to your beloved old forms that you cannot make room for the new and fresh work of the Holy Spirit. Now, if I were to ask you one by one, do you want to see the Holy Spirit doing something new and exciting and life-giving in this congregation? I'll bet most of you would say, yes! I know that a few of you might not. A few of you might be happy just the way things are, but I think most of you would say, yes, we want a new work of the Spirit. Yes, we want the ferment of God's Spirit that's bubbling and gurgling within us and and growing and doing a new thing. We want to. Come, Holy Spirit. May I just tell you, that is a very dangerous prayer to pray. Because the Holy Spirit, once invited in, is impossible to contain He will bubble and he will ferment and he will expand and he will strain until the new work that he wants to do is accomplished. 
And we can murmur about it, we can grumble about it, or we can throw our hands up like we're on a, a great roller coaster ride and say, Woohoo! Here we go! I'd love to see a little more of that among us. Because the Holy Spirit, in fact, is doing a new work in our midst. An exciting new work. It's not a cause for mourning. It's a cause for celebration. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to come to the table of the Lord, and we're going to celebrate the gifts and the goodness of God. Ordinarily, when we come to communion, we do so kind of somberly, kind of soberly, in recognition of the somber nature of the sacrifice which it recalls. That's one appropriate way to come to the table. But another appropriate way would be in the spirit of the wedding feast. Another appropriate way would be to come and say, I get to eat and drink, and it's a reminder of God's love for me through Jesus Christ. It's a reminder that the Spirit has been given to the church and is still alive and well today in our midst. So I'm going to ask you to do something really crazy. Today, after you receive the bread and dip it in the juice and partake of it, I'm going to invite you to say, thank you, Jesus. This is what our Mexican uh, mission kids did, Mexico mission kids did. When they received the sacrament down there, they got the bread, they dipped it in the juice, they took it, and they said, thank you, Jesus. So I'm going to invite you, as much as your little Presbyterian self will allow, (laughs) to cry out. I'm going to be interested to hear the first one whose voice rings through the sanctuary. Thank you, Jesus. This is a cause for reflection. It is also a cause for celebration. We're coming to the table of the Lord. He invites all who love Jesus, all who have asked Christ into their life and want to be forgiven of their sins, you're invited to come. If you've never made that profession of faith, but today you're saying, I want that, I need that, I want to be a part of this body, even this would be your profession of faith as you come forward and say, Jesus, I receive you, your your death, your sacrifice, your life. Thank you, Jesus. So I invite you to come and partake. It's the feast of God for the people of God.